this morning we uh, begin uh, with a new series, and it just happens to be a new series that uh, came to be on the same Sunday as Reformation Sunday. This happens to be Reformation Sunday, the Sunday we celebrate when 506 years ago, I don't think any of us were around, Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the Wittenberg Chapel, and that sparked what we know as the Protestant Reformation, where there were questions about how the church was going about doing certain things, certain practices, and seeking to restore the true gospel uh, to the church. And so uh, we're going to kind of combine those two ideas, and, and it's a blessing because one of the books that was so profound in the Reformers' minds was the Book of Romans. And so we'll share a little bit of insight on that in just a moment. Uh, but with that, I do want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans, the book of Romans. You'll get used to be turning here for quite some time uh, because uh, I've mapped out already about 209 uh, potential sermons out of this. Um, so however long that's going to take us. And uh, I've already, you know me, I can, uh, I can map out one section and we'll milk it for all it's worth. So we'll see where we go with this. But we're going to start with Romans and chapter 1, of course. And can we not go to the next slide, please? Because that's going to be a little bit later. I'm going to have you stand, and I'm going to go back to the first slide. <clears throat> uh, have you stand, and I'd like to read for you Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. So if you stand for the reading of God's word, just to hear this introduction, we are not getting anywhere near accomplishing seven verses today. So... Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May Jesus Christ be praised. You may be seated. Well, as I said this morning is Reformation Sunday, the day in which Protestant churches like our own remember the event that sparked a movement to seek to restore the true gospel to the church. Many of you know who God used to spark this Reformation. He was a monk by the name of Martin Luther. It was on October 31st, 1517 that, of course, Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the chapel door in Wittenberg, Germany, and that ignited the Protestant Reformation. At the heart of the Reformation, that is, what was it that caused Luther and others to question the, to question the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, was what the Bible teaches concerning how a person is justified, how a person can ever be made right with a holy God. Luther made this conclusion about justification by faith alone by saying it is this, he said, quote, the article upon which the church stands or falls. 
this concept of how we are justified, made right before God, determines whether the church stands or falls. Any church which puts the in place uh, in the place of justification by faith in Christ, any other method of salvation is a harlot church, so said Luther. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is not simply the reason for the Reformation, it is actually the very heart of the gospel itself. In other words, it may be possible for believers to err on a myriad of other theological points and yet be saved. And yet if a person is wrong on what the scripture teaches with regard how a man is made right before God, a holy God, how he is justified before God, he cannot be in a right relationship with God, and therefore he remains damned in his sins. The doctrine of justification by faith alone answers the, uh, the most fundamental spiritual question that anyone must answer. And again, it is how is it that a sinful person may ever be right, may ever stand before the holy God? How can a person who, was, who has broken God's righteous standards and thus declared, as the scriptures say, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, how can this unholy, undeserving creature who deserves only God's wrath receive the benevolence of God's salvation? In the fall of 1515, 508, 508 years ago, Luther began to lecture through the book of Romans. We're still not. Oh, are we? We are now. Okay, you got me. Okay. Luther began to lecture through the book of Romans. And as he came to Romans 1.17, Luther wrote this. He said, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. When he says the justice of God, that's our translation, the righteousness of God. Same meaning. Luther goes on. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly, in punishing the unjust, or to use the NASB's reading, because I took it to mean that that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. What Luther was concerned about as he read verse 17 is all I see there is condemnation. All I see here is that God is right and just to condemn every sinner to hell. There's no joy, there's no peace in this particular phraseology. Luther continues, my situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage or satisfy him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the righteous, the just, shall live by faith. Again, that is verse 17, where it says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Luther, those words troubled Luther as he pondered them over and over. 
uh, trying to understand what he was trying to communicate to his students, and he had to understand them. And then the light bulb went on. Have you ever read the word of God, and you're like, I don't get this, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, Luther had one of those aha moments, and he writes this. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me, listen, a gate to heaven, unquote. He began to recognize that what's being spoken of in this text and what will be spoken of throughout the book of Romans is that God has provided the way, the means for us to be righteous through Jesus Christ. It's not the righteousness that condemns. It is the righteousness that converts us and brings us into a right relationship with the living God. And all of this launched the Reformation. And all of this changed the course of church history. You and I are here right now hearing this message. We find our, you may find yourself in the same place as Luther did 500 some odd years ago. I doubt that you are here because you're a monk. But you may be equally into walking righteously as Luther did, thinking it's going to be by your good efforts, your good works, that you're here. Hey, you're here at church. That's got to earn you some brownie points with God. You didn't cuss too much this week. That's got to earn you some brownie points with God. You weren't mean to people. Uh, you were driving down the highway. So that's got to earn some points with God. Well, Luther said, hey, I was reading, I was praying, I was serving others. And yet, you may be here with a troubled conscience, even as he did, and ask the question, will God be satisfied with my efforts? And you know every one of you knows the answer to the question, will God be satisfied with your efforts? What's the answer? Not on your life. I pray that the book that rocked Luther's world that got him to see that one standing is not a matter of one's own personal religious efforts, but rather is an issue of faith in the person, in the work, in the merits of every detail of what Jesus Christ did for us, that that would rock our worlds. That we would come to appreciate what it means in the words of Romans 1.17, that the righteous that if we have believed, we have been made righteous because of Christ. And so we live now by faith in what Christ has done and what Christ alone has accomplished. This morning we begin a most monumental and meaningful task, the verse-by-verse exposition of Paul's letter to the Romans. As we will come to see in the many months or years ahead of us, the main theme of Romans centers on the glorious gospel of our God as realized in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the gospel. This will be for us 
the examination of the fullness of the gospel of God. God in his infinite wisdom and grace has granted his people the wellspring of knowledge and insight brought to light in this one epic letter. In the opening books of the New Testament, we are immediately struck, are we not, with the wonder of being introduced to the person of Jesus Christ. We have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one of those men were looking at Jesus and describing the Gospel that Jesus preached from various perspectives, from what they saw. We have the book of Acts, where we're offered the history of the church And then by God's good and divine providence, we have in our Bibles next the book of Romans. It's not only the first of Paul's letters, it's the first of all the New Testament letters. And we find in this wondrous book, the book of Romans, what I would say to you is a fifth gospel. We have the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And now we come to the gospel according to God. We'll see in the book of Romans, this is God's divine perception. This is God's revelation of the gospel. You say, well, isn't that what the other gospels are? Yes, but this is from a different perspective. If you're familiar with the Old Testament books of 1 Kings, it's 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. 1 and 2 Kings is the the kingly record from a human perspective. It's it's what the people here on earth were seeing. And 1 and 2 Chronicles is the kingly record from God's perspective. And we see the same thing as we come to the book of Romans. We have the the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, from these men's perspective, divinely inspired. But now we see the Gospel according to God. In this letter, we find Paul expounding for us those aspects of the Gospel that reveal to us the glory and the righteousness of our God. In these pages, we'll be confronted with what what simultaneously becomes to us both bad news and good news. You're going to read this letter, and you're going to be struck with bad news. And then simultaneously, you're going to say, but wait, there's good news. What is this bad news and good news? We'll flesh it out a little more next week. But here's the bad news and good news in a phrase. You ready? The righteousness of God. That's bad news. And it's good news. It's bad news if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. And it's good news when you do believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God. the Such perfect, pure, unsullied righteousness. The truth that God does nothing wrong. Everything he does is right. He never sins. That's bad news for humanity. For to stand in God's presence uncondemned requires, what? Nothing short of God's perfect righteousness. The problem is that humanity is not capable of such righteousness in and of themselves and are, in fact, unrighteous and sinful, as we all hear. They all deserve God's eternal condemnation and punishment, and so that's bad news. But the good news is that because of this righteousness of God, as revealed now in the person and work of Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, God has made a way for us, for that divine righteousness of Christ to be received, to be imputed, to be placed upon us, to dress us in his 
own robes of righteousness to those who have faith, to those who say, you know what? That is what Christ has done, and he did it for me. His robes were mine. And this, he, he does this to reconcile us to God. And then we were covered with that righteousness so that now when God looks upon us, he does not see the sinfulness of us. He sees the righteousness of his own beloved son. So we'll spend much time on the subject of the righteousness of God. In fact, it's possible to outline the entire book of Romans with such a view. This is not our primary outline, but we may say Uh, if we were to divide up this book, to say that the righteousness of God required from humanity, and just kind of throwing this up there for you, the righteousness of God revealed in Christ alone, the righteousness of God received by faith alone, the righteousness of God realized in sanctification, the righteousness of God retained in glorification, the righteousness of God rejected by non-elect Israel, that'll be fun, and then the righteousness of God reproduced in a converted life, Uh, You just might make note of that as you read through the book of Romans. This is what you're seeing about the righteousness of God. We need to realize that a study of this book will undoubtedly, undoubtedly cause our doctrine to grow stronger. It will cause our faith to run deeper. It will cause our worship to be higher, our lives to be holier, our fellowship to become more intimate, our outreach to be more impactful. And so these are just a few reasons why I believe we ought to commit ourselves to be under the steady preaching of the book of Romans. Starting a new book to preach is always an adventure because I need to preach some background if we'd rightly understand the book. And yet, uh, it's hard to preach background. How do you preach background, right? It's amazing to me to consider how God has determined to use this particular letter so profoundly to impact the church of Jesus Christ. Men like Augustine... If you know anything about his story, it was because of reading Romans 14 that he came to faith. Men like Luther, as we just saw, Charles West, or, uh, John Wesley, and others all own their conversion to Christ, usually on just a few verses from this particular book. The Spirit of God has used these words to, to initiate numerous reformations and revivals in the church. I guess if we were to take a survey, many of you would say that many of the verses in the book of Romans were used and were important in your own coming to faith. I know they were for me. When you hear some of those familiar verses, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and you went, wait, that's me. And that the wages of sin is death. And you say, wait, that's me. You say, but the free gift of God is Salvation through Jesus Christ. Well, how do I obtain that? That if I confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, that I will be saved. And that's just a small sample from the book of Romans. The book of Romans is the first and longest of Paul's letters. It has been called the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. It supremely showcases the core doctrines of our faith. So profound is this book that John Calvin, the great reformer, said, quote, When one gains the knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture, unquote. You want to know the depths and wonder of the word of God? Then get to know the book of Romans. 
Martin Luther said of Romans, quote, it is the very purest gospel, and it is worthy not only that every Christian should know it, listen, should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. If you try to read through the book of Romans and you're like, well, this is heavy stuff, this doesn't taste very good, read it again, and it will get sweeter. You say, it's still not sweet the second time, Pastor. Well, read it again, and then read it again, and you will come to find a delight in the book of Romans. It's because of this, though, that when I come to the preparation and preaching of this letter, I do so with a bit of anxiety. I know the preacher shouldn't be anxious for anything, but take everything to the Lord in prayer. Well, I have. But as we begin this series, I tell you, I stand on the shoulders of giants. Over the course of 13 years, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached some 366 sermons every Friday night, and yet he only made it to Romans 14, verse 17. Donald Gray Barnhouse of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia preached out of Romans for 11 years. And while I don't anticipate going quite that long, the point is there's a lot of things for us to cover. Out of our study of Romans, we'll find ourselves deep, digging deeply into the doctrines of our faith. We'll explore Old Testament persons and, and the pictures Paul uses to demonstrate his points. We will be confronted with making sure that our confession of faith matches our conduct of living. The book of Romans is broad in all that addresses. Within these pages are 57 direct quotes from the Old Testament, more than any other New Testament book. Often during the second hours, the young people will come up to me and say, hey, pastor, can you give me some key words from the message that you're about to give? And so I do. Well, there are some key words in the book of Romans, and we have them listed for you. Paul uses the word God 153 times in 16 chapters. He uses the word law 72 times, Christ 65 times, sin is used 48 times, Lord is used 43 times, Faith is used 40 times, and so that tells us that the book of Romans is about God, the law, Christ, sin, the Lord, faith, and all the implications, every ramification that you can imagine that flow from that. There are some 433 verses in its 16 chapters. As the title indicates, Romans was written, as we saw, read in verse 7, to all who are, here's this word, do you remember this word? Because Peter loved this word, right? To all who are beloved of God in Rome. Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire. These believers, called saints or holy ones, they formed a church there. And most likely, they traced their beginnings all the way back to where? To something that took place in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, around A.D. 32, 33 A.D., when Peter, as a result of his powerful preaching, uh, had uh, the Holy Spirit brought many Jews to faith in Christ, and then they later did what? They went back to their hometowns. By the time Paul comes or writes this letter to them, it's some 20 years later, about 56, 57 A.D., a church had been operating for some time and was now a combination not only of Jewish believers, but of Jewish and Gentile believers 
and it is believed that Paul's co-workers, Aquila and Priscilla, were those that would give reports to Paul about what was taking place in the church at Rome. We find Paul writing this letter for a few reasons that I want you to note. First, it was to introduce himself to the church. He wanted to say, hey, guys, I'm Paul. And I'm going to give you a little sampling of, of how I preach and what, what's important to me so that when I come to you, I, I don't have to repeat all of these things. So he's introducing himself. And so he has that very idea. He wants them to know who he is before he makes his personal visit. And we see this desire, if you look in your Bibles at Romans 1, verses 10 and 11, where he says, uh, always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. He wants to come and see them, so he's introducing himself. In fact, chapters, uh, excuse me, a second reason, another reason why he wrote was to reinforce in these believers the apostolic teaching. That's a big word, apostolic teaching. It just means the teachings that God or Christ had sanctioned these men to communicate. This is Christ's teaching. And so he wanted to reinforce that. He wanted to give the instructions of the apostles concerning how they ought to live and conduct themselves together in the church. We see this in Romans 15, 15. If you wanted to look at it, it reads this. He says, but I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. He wanted to remind them of certain truths. In fact, chapters 12 through 16, a big chunk of this uh, book, five chapters deal largely with what? The church, church life how we're supposed to interact with one another, how the church is supposed to interact even with the culture and with government. And so throughout Romans, Paul addresses such issues as the universal need for the gospel to be proclaimed to all people. He makes a distinction for us in, between justification and sanctification. Why is that important? Justification is the act where God declares us right with him versus sanctification, the process by which God, by his Holy Spirit, conforms us more and more to the image of his son, the role and function of the spirit in our life. He speaks of sovereign election and how that impacts not only us, but Israel. He'll speak of the Christian life and the use of spiritual gifts, of believers' relationship to the government, as well as the unity and what happens when there are divisions within a congregation. Well, the final reason that he gives for writing this letter was to encourage them to contribute to something. Isn't that just like a preacher? Hey, we need you to give. Paul's writing to encourage them to participate with him in a missionary effort. Paul's great desire was to get to Rome and to give them, to impart some spiritual gift to them, but he wanted to use that as a springboard to get all the way to Spain. He wanted to preach the gospel where it had never been preached before, and that journey would require a lot of help, and a lot of resources. And so we read of this in Romans 15, 24, when he says, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. So what he desires is to have that kind of uh, help. So in summary, Paul's letter to the Romans was biographical, it was theological, it was practical, and it was pastoral and missional pretty much covers everything doesn't it what else is there 
But let us turn our attention now to the book of Romans and look at the very first verse, if you would, with me. Verse 1 says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. I'd like us to begin this morning by noticing four things that are communicated to us by Paul as he begins this book. All he's doing is introducing himself in these words. And he begins, interestingly enough, with his self-effacing name. He says his name is Paul. It might be easy to gloss over his name so as to note the other things that he says in the rest of the verse. Those things are easy, right? Well, he's a bondservant of Christ Jesus. That's one. Called as an apostle. That's two. Set apart for the gospel. That's three. But he begins with his name. You say, why are you making so much of this name? Well, let me fill you in. There's something important to consider about his name. The name Paul is our author's official Roman name. It is derived from a Latin word that translates this way. You ready? The little one. That's what Paul means. The little one. What ought to immediately strike us then is when Paul begins this great letter to the Romans, to the church at Rome, the capital, he uses a name that means, I'm the tiny one. I'm the little one. Let me remind you that before he identified as Paul, he was known also as Saul. It is in the book of Acts that we find him called by both names, first as Saul and then later as Paul. But why did he choose in this letter to go by Paul rather than beginning with, Hi, I'm Saul of Tarsus. He began simply with Paul. Well, let me offer you what I think are two reasons. The first, that this is a display. We're getting ahead of me here. This is a display of his humility. We don't need B yet. It's a display of his humility. There are some who think Jesus changed Saul's name. You ever heard that? Jesus changed Saul's name to Paul. But we do not read of any such thing in Acts 9 at his conversion. Rather, Acts 9.13 simply tells us that Saul also is called Paul. He has two names. That's all that we go with. Given that Paul was, according to Acts, born a Roman citizen, it is highly likely that he had a Roman name, Paulus, from birth. And at the same time, his parents were devout Jews. They were devout Jews, and so they gave him a traditional Hebrew name, which was Saul. More than likely, while we know that know him predominantly as Paul, he did not ever forsake his Hebrew name completely. So the name Paul simply means the little one, whereas Saul in his Hebrew would mean the desired one. So now Paul comes and he begins this letter. Does he want to be noted as the desired one, or would he want to present himself as the little one? So our author doesn't begin with Saul but his Roman name. Remember that the name Saul was Jewish, and it would cause people to consider who? The very famous first king of Israel. But, Paul used, or, but by using the name Paul, the little one, we are struck with his humility. I believe he's saying he is willing to be known as the little or small one. He's the one who preaches Jesus Christ, who Jesus is the great one. 
I'm the little one. He's the great one. Sound like maybe John the Baptist a little bit. He must increase. I must decrease. It's also interesting to note that while King Saul started out well, being quite popular and loved by the people, according to 1 Samuel 9 through 11, he, however, ended quite poorly, did he not? He committed suicide by falling on his own sword in order to avoid being captured by in battle, according to 1 Samuel 31. But in this case, this Saul, we see the op- opposite. This Saul of the New Testament started out poorly, but how did he end? He started out with these murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord, but according to Acts 9, he ended up becoming a servant of Christ in the church. And all of this was because of the grace that Christ had given to him. Well, there's a second reason that uh, uh, we have here why he would start this way, and that would be so as not to be a hindrance. So as not to be a hindrance. Paul understood his ministry to be primarily directed towards the Gentiles, not towards the, the Jews. Not wanting to be a stumbling block to them, he chose then a Roman name rather than his Hebrew name. This would fit Paul's character, as he said in 1 Corinthians 9.23, saying, quote, I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. He didn't want to be a hindrance to the Gentiles to whom he was ministering. And beloved, all this reminds us that following Christ ought to cause us to be humble. And what does that look like? We talk about humility all the time. What does that look like? How do we apply humility from this example of Paul? Beloved, we should do all that we can. We should be willing to do anything we can to see others saved as we proclaim and practice the gospel. That should be the mindset because that's what we see in the life of Paul. Do you, uh, do you recognize that? That even the name Christian, the name Christian that we use so profoundly, we use so often, do you know that it was first used as a derogatory term against the followers of Jesus Christ? You know why it was a derogatory term or why they thought it was a derogatory term? Because they said, you're a Christian, you're a little Christ. And the Christians went, yeah. That's what we are. We serve the great Christ, and we're just little reflections of him. And so call us Christians. We're, we're okay. We're okay with that. Do you approach Christ and living for him with such humility so as not to be a hindrance to others to hear the gospel? As believers, we are to bear the self-effacing name of Christian. We are to be okay to say, I'm little. I'm a little Christ. I'm not a big Ed. I'm to be a little Christ, a reflection of Jesus, not a projection of myself. Well, that leads us to our second point. Not only do we see his self-effacing name, but we see his service, his service. He says of himself that he's a bondservant of Christ Jesus. And I'd have you notice that after giving his readers his name, Paul uses this, this description Uh, of himself he's going to describe himself in three ways first depicting his service calling himself this bond servant of Christ Jesus and there is a sense in which Paul uh, is not answering the question here of who is Paul it's not the question who are you who who is Paul I could ask you that question you give me all sorts of answers but Paul's not trying to answer the question who is Paul 
You know what question he answers immediately? He says, Paul, the little one, and the right question that should be asked now is, whose is Paul? Not who is Paul, but whose is Paul? We live in some wild times, times in which people are struggling with identity. And sadly, because of sin, they, can conclude, they come to the conclusion that they can identify as something that they are not. Nevertheless, what many are struggling with is the question, who am I? We have teenagers struggling with, who am I? We have adults struggling with, who am I? Am I male or female? Am I straight or homosexual? Am I binary or non-binary or pan-binary or whatever multitude of descriptions there are? It was hard enough before without all the nonsense and sin that we see rampant today. But now it's even worse. But I submit to you that the better question of asking who are you is to answer the question, whose are you? To whom do you belong? If I belong to myself, if I belong to this world, if I belong to the devil, well, then that's a problem. But for those who can say that they belong to Jesus Christ, that they are found in him, these can say, he's my identity, he's my life, he's my truth. He's my way, he's my hope, he's my peace, he's my joy. That's my identity if I belong to Christ. So to the question, if the question is, whose am I? Paul has an answer. I belong to Christ. And the way he describes belonging to Christ is by the use of this word, bond servant. Bond servant of, bond servant belonging to Christ Jesus. Now, the word bond servant is actually a very tamed down, watered down version of the original Greek, which would have been a shocking identification for most of his readers. When Paul, the great Saul of Tarsus, the great teacher, the great rabbi, says he's a bondservant, actually he uses the word doulos, and it means slave. He says, I am a slave of Jesus, or Christ Jesus. This is a very strong word Paul uses to describe his relationship with the Lord. I wonder how many times you and I actually use that term. I mean, we throw it around occasionally, but do, how do you introduce yourself? Paul's introducing himself. The first words out of his mouth, the first way he describes Jesus as Jesus being his owner. Paul, a slave belonging to Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. The word itself, doulos, describes the sole commitment of one person to another, of being absolutely ready to do the bidding of the master, no questions asked. We, while we tend to think of the word slave as implying some sort of relationship of cruelty 
or of compulsion. For Paul, it was a relationship of total commitment, devotion. It was a willing allegiance wrought in his heart by the free grace that he received from Jesus. In other words, Paul had a longing. He longed to belong to Christ. He longed to be the slave of Christ. I ask you, does that describe your heart this morning? Oh, I fear sometimes that I can say the words, but do I really mean I am sold out entirely to Christ and Christ alone? In Roman culture, and remember Paul is writing to the Romans, a doulos, a slave, was the absolute lowest on the level of society. There was no one lower than the slave. No one ever aspired to be a slave. They never said, I can't wait to grow up and be a slave. And yet Paul begins by saying, guess what? I'm a slave who belongs to Christ Jesus. There is actually a sense in which Paul seems to delight in the title as he uses it of himself a number of times here in Romans 1 1, 2 Corinthians 4 5, Galatians 1 10, Philippians 1 1, Titus 1 1. Now there are three things that we ought to consider about this aspect of being a slave, a doulos. And the first is this. You need to remember when, when Paul uses this term, he recognizes these three things. One is that a slave has been purchased by a master. Those we're going to have them all. Any slave was purchased by his owner or master, and such is true, is it not, of believers? Were you not purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ? Not one of us in this room has a right to say, I am not a slave of Christ. For if you profess Christ, you are actually identifying that he's purchased you, he's redeemed you. Well, where stands it written? We read in 1 Corinthians 7.23 these words. 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought at a price, therefore do not become slaves of men. Don't give yourself to the service of humanity. Give yourself to the service of the one who bought you with a price. If you are a believer, someone paid something for you, something precious, something valuable. What was it? The very blood of Jesus Christ. We read in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed, you were not purchased with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. What were you bought with people? With the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You've been bought with the price of the blood of Christ. Consider Paul's words to the Ephesian elders. He's speaking to the leaders at the church there in Ephesus, and he reminds them in Acts 20, 28, these words. He says to them, men, be on, your guard, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Believers are bought at a price, and Paul knew that he had been purchased. And so the very first thing, as he introduces himself to these people who don't know him, he says, I want you to know that I've been purchased by the blood of Christ. I'm a slave. But there's a second aspect 
which goes to with the first, right? Slave is the possession of the master. The slave is the possession of the master. Let me tell you something about slaves, and you already know this, but we don't always live it, right? A slave is not his own. Feel better about knowing that? Since believers are slaves of Christ, purchased by his blood, this means that they're not their own. Let me just remind you of the implications of that. Your time is not your own. You don't own any of the time that you have, but, but what, what, what do we always do? Well, I got to make time for this, and I don't have time for that. And we talk about our time, and this is my time, me time. We don't own that time. Slaves do not get to determine what, what uh, he will or will not do on any given day. No slave gets to plan their activities based on their own wishes and whims. Everything the slave does is based upon the wishes and the whims and the desire and the plan of the master who bought him. He is his master's possession. So we need to remember it's not our time but the Lord's time. It's not our resources but the Lord's resources. It's not our car, it's the Lord's car. It's not my body and my choice. These are the Lord's bodies and it's his choice. But oh, how our culture and even Christians at times can hate that truth, right? We are Americans. We are free. We are free to do what we want. But according to Paul, he says, I consider myself ultimately only free when I'm in bondage to Christ Jesus. You want to be free? Be the slave of Christ. You want to enjoy life? Be the slave of Christ. Oh, that doesn't sound like freedom to me, Pastor. I should want to get to do whatever I want. Guess what? You go in, you put yourself in bondage to those other things, and they lead to what? Eternal bondage, eternal death. Everything about Paul, he says from the very beginning, his very first introduction, he says, everything about me belongs in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, Paul said to believers, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. This means everything you have, everything you are, belongs to him. And that leads us to the third aspect of what a slave is. A slave lives at the pleasure of his master. A slave lives moment by moment for the pleasure of the one who purchased him. And Paul understood and conveyed this truth about himself. And th it is this truth of his service to Christ as a slave that brought him the greatest freedom to ministry. I needed to hear this. I needed to, to discern this this week. How is it that Paul worked away unafraid and unintimidated by others? How was it that he didn't go through the day thinking, I wonder what so-and-so thinks about me. I wonder if I've, if, I've, if I've offended this person anyway. Because you know what? He said, I can't live that way. I can't live trying to please everybody. And ultimately, there's only one person that I need to please. There's only one person that it matters what he thinks. 
at the end of any day. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says there's great freedom when you get to that place where you recognize if you can come to the end of the day and say, Lord, I have done everything I can to glorify you. I've sought to please you. My life has been a reflection of you. In any areas that you recognize you haven't, you confess them. And if it causes an offense, you go to that other person. But the person that I'm most concerned about, and so it gives me freedom because I don't have to worry about anything else, is what does Jesus think about my life today? What does Jesus think about the way I've conducted my life today? He did not care what others thought, only what his master, the Lord Jesus, thought. Paul says as much in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verse 10, a verse that provides any believer great freedom to share the gospel. I don't care what other people think about me when I share the gospel because ultimately I care about what Christ says. And Christ says, go and make disciples. And so I'm going to proclaim the gospel. And if they think I'm an idiot, if they think that I'm a fool, if they think that I'm uneducated, it doesn't matter. It's the Lord Jesus that I'm seeking to please. And so Paul says in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verse 10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, listen to what he says. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant, a slave of Christ. When you stop, when you are concerned about what others think, you are no longer the slave of Christ. You are the slave of what others think about you. Do you see how liberating this statement is? There's no second guessing, no need to wonder what others think about you, wondering if they like you or wondering what they are saying about you because that all leads to bondage. Paul considered that there was only one person that he is to please, one person whose will mattered, and that was Christ. And so if he got to the end of the day and could say that he sought to faithfully serve and proclaim Christ, then he could say nothing else matters. Paul was a slave of Christ Jesus. As we begin the book of Romans, we'll find that there are many heavy and hard truths, things that the majority of people do not want to hear. They may often strike back when we talk about such things verbally, emotionally, and in even some cases we're seeing now physically. Beloved, if you are not a bondservant, if you are not a slave of Christ, then you will not share these truths in this, of this book because you'll become what? You'll be too concerned about what others think about you. You'll be too concerned about what if this offends the person that I'm speaking to? I don't care because God says this is the truth. You proclaim that. And one of the weaknesses of the church is this lie that we've believed that we can just kind of be Gentile. Gentile, we are Gentile. Okay, we can be <laughs> genteel and we can, can kind of, you know, finesse our way with the gospel. No, proclaim the truth. Let the chips fall where they may. That doesn't mean be pugnacious. It doesn't mean to be, uh, you know, rude. It just... Whatever the truth is, speak the truth and make sure that you please God and not man. Paul would have never fulfilled his ministry 
Think about it. Paul would have never fulfilled his ministry if he had been a man pleaser, going from place to place. The gospel would have never spread. Instead, Paul proclaimed the truth of his master regardless of whether the hearers believed it or not, whether the hearers liked it or not, regardless of whether the hearers might actually take him up to the outside of town and throw stones at him. It did not matter. He got up out of that mess after being stoned. And you know what he's probably thinking? Well, this hurts a little bit, but I know I please God. And then where most of us would say, okay, I need a couple of weeks off to tend to my, my wounds, Paul says, my master said, go and proclaim the gospel to this place. And so what did he do? Bandaged himself up, limps back in and says, let me tell you more about Jesus. Paul proclaimed the truth of this book because it's what the master gave him to proclaim and because knowing it was the truth that leads to eternal life, what else could he do? Jesus said, go, I'm going. Jesus said, make disciples, I'm making disciples. Jesus said, preach the gospel, I'm preaching the gospel. Why? Because Paul belonged to Christ Jesus, the promised one of God whose name is Jesus. And belonging to Jesus meant that Jesus had bought him. And this reminds us that we are all slaves of Christ. And as slaves of Christ, we have the greatest freedom that we could ever imagine. Now, I have 32 pages of notes left. And I have so much more that I want to say. But I think we're at a good stop place to stop. We're not at a good place to stop because we're right in the middle of a verse, okay? But we're going to stop on this note because more than anything else, I desire for myself things that I've been wrestling through for several months of just trying to recognize how do you navigate the waters. Uh, we've been uh, as a church through a lot of things over the last three years. Individuals have been through a lot of things through the last three years. There's ups and downs. How do you navigate the waters? And I just came back to this one simple truth, the very thing that Paul begins this letter with. And if Paul, it was good enough for Paul to start off with this phraseology, it's good enough for me to remind myself every day that I've been bought with a price. I've been purchased by Christ. He is my master. I am the slave. It is not my will, but his will. It is not what I desire, but what he desires. At the end of the day, we are to imitate Christ. We recognize this, and even the Lord Jesus Christ gave us an example of this when in the garden he said, not my will, but your will be done. And we say all of that phraseology so often, but do we live it out? Do we recognize that we are the Lord's entirely? There's a song, and we've done it before in the church to a tune that... Uh, that uh, I wrote, but uh, it's a hymn that says, Lord, I am thine, entirely thine, purchased and paid by blood divine. And I would just ask you, is that an accurate description of us? See, well, most of us, I think, would say, well, I, I belong to the Lord. 
That's not what the hymn writer says. Lord, I am thine entirely. What needs to be given back over to your master? What have you been holding on to that keeps you from being the full slave of Christ? Because anything that we hold on to, guess what? It means that we're either, we're man pleasers. You may be the man that you're trying to please. It may be someone else that you're trying to please. Why would we seek to please anyone but the Lord Jesus Christ? Pray that we can find freedom in you, that we find our joy in that, our rest in that, our peace in that, because there's no peace in this world apart from Christ. There's not a lot of joyful things going on out there. I mean, there's these little, little temporal things, but full joy, complete joy, entire joy is in Christ. So ask yourself the question, am I entirely the Lord? Do I belong to the Lord? Am I the bondservant Father God, we thank you for the examples you've give, given to us in your word of men and women, these people who have so sold themselves out for Christ entirely. And we can look at their lives and say, yeah, I wish that would be me. But, and we give all of our excuses to that. I can't do these things like Paul because I have these other responsibilities. And Father, I pray that you would bring to light where some of those other responsibilities, if they're taking us <coughs> away from being slaves of Christ, there's something, something wrong. Maybe we need to rethink how we go about doing these other things so that Christ is with us in those things, that Christ is foremost and first in those things. But Father, I pray that we would delight in this privilege of being slaves of Christ because the alternative is to be slaves of sin. And so Father, we pray that we would come to recognize what Paul recognized and come to delight in what Paul recognized that his identity is found in belonging. May that be true of us this day, we ask in Jesus' name.